This is the Bayes Factor, a podcast about the people behind Bayesian statistics and other hot methodological issues in psychological research. In this sixth episode, Alex interviews two early career psychology researchers, Michel Nuiten and John Sakaluk. Michel is an assistant professor in the Department of Methodology and Statistics at Tilburg University. John is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Victoria. They discuss their experiences organizing and attending the SIPS meetings, the way they practice what they preach about open science, and how they teach research methods in the midst of the current reproducibility crisis. Okay, so we're here at SIPS 2017, Society for Improvement of Psychological Science. I'm here with John Sakaluk and Michelle Newton, and we are going to be talking about SIPS, its organization, organizing the conference, what we've gotten out of it, uh, and all other sorts of research methods and stuff like that. Um, so I thought maybe we'd start by just saying, how, how do we know each other? Uh, Michelle, I think we met, when did we first meet? How do we know each other? Uh, well, first over Twitter. We've probably Twitter, probably yeah, Twitter. and I think APS Chicago. That was Were last you there? year? I was there. No, last year was, oh, this year was Boston. This year was Boston. I think last year was Chicago. Not sure. You also worked at the uh, University of Amsterdam for, yeah, for a while, a right? Bit. Maybe yeah. I've seen you there. Just a little bit. But, I have no but idea. But then we also met at BITS in Berkeley. Yes, that's Maybe true. that was it. Yeah. But John Yoon and I, we met at SIPS last year. We met at SIPS last year, and before that, we interacted a little bit. Uh, on Twitter. So both of you are people that I know first and foremost uh, through the internets. Through the internet. Uh, and and Michelle, uh, I know because uh, I, I wrote a one-off paper on on reviewing the accuracy of statistical results. It was originally billed as a, a system to prevent fraud. And then Michelle did, and, and her gang did all of their wonderful you know, stat check work, and I was like, "Well, yeah, do do they they figured it out? They they solved they solved the problem. Do what they say. <laughs> do, yeah. do what they say. Whatever Michelle says, do it. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so uh, uh, what do you like about this SIPS meeting? It's sort of unconventional. Uh, do you like that this unconventionalness to it, or uh, what do you think? I think it's awesome. You I like mean, it. I I helped uh, organizing a lot of things. John and I are both in the program committee. And I wasn't here last year, so a lot of the things had no idea what to expect. Like Brian was kept talking about hackathons and lightning talks, and uh, what else do we have? Unconference sessions. That is another thing. And most of these things, I was like, "What? What?" <laughs> and and then yeah, they asked like, "Yeah, why didn't you do the lightning? Why didn't you coordinate the lightning sessions?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'll do that. What is it?" And <laughs> and what is it though? A lightning talk is is a five minute talk about basically anything that you think is relevant for the SIPS crowd that you can fit in five minutes. Uh -huh. So that actually, I think that is the most straightforward conference form that we have here. But all the other things, it's just really sort of focused on doing things instead of just talking about them, because that's usually my experience at regular conferences. Right. That I actually sort of stopped going to talks to just actually hang out with people because I feel like that that is much more productive and then it feels a bit of a waste to actually fly across the ocean and now <laughs> there's actually a point to it. Right. 
I, I feel the same way, and I've been going through a little bit of a, a cynical streak about conference attendance for myself. And, you know, I go to certain meetings and I kind of wonder, you know, how much am I really getting out of it? How much are other people getting out of it? Of me just kind of showing up and all of us, you know, providing very incremental updates on our research programs. Uh, but then here comes SIPs and, you know, in a day and a half, and, you know, the three of us have been have been working in the research uh, method syllabus, you know, hack pretty steadily for the last day and a half. And it's like, you look at what our group accomplished in a day and a half. I think we have 30 modules that were produced in like, it's, a day and a morning or it's something. staggering right. and yeah there's more work to be done but so I, I love it because now i'm i'm riding this manic wave of anything is possible right uh <laughs> and i also get to drink uh, your beer alex so that's that's a real <laughs> highlight too yeah well you know there's more where that came from but uh so what what exactly are these modules that we've been working on do, do either of you want to say yeah i think john this? just organized them in sort of sensible categories yeah yeah. So the the idea is is that a lot of a lot of folks want uh, to be able to offer either entirely updated and overhauled research methods courses, uh, kind of appropriate for the year 2017 in light of the replicability crisis, um, or folks might have a pre-existing research methods course and just want to be able to update a, a certain topic. Like maybe they want to be able to speak to uh, statistical power and the latest and greatest, you know, kind of conceptual takes on it and what are some helpful resources. Uh, so we thought it would be a good idea to get together in a room uh, and uh, generate a list of topics that we thought folks would want kind of self-contained units on uh, and then go to town, you know, identifying and cultivating lists of, of accessible uh, but, but comprehensive readings, uh, demonstrations, assignments. And we basically got most of it done. We won. We won. <laughs> we won. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so the idea of this is like, maybe you don't take all of this, but you take one module, or you take three modules and put them together, and there's a month of, of your class work or something like this. Yeah, right? pretty much. Yeah. And, and how exactly did this group come up? Because the organizers of this hackathon, is what we call it, was Michelle, John, and Dan Simons. Uh, how exactly did you guys come together on this? Did you suggest the topic or? Well, well, there's a bit of organizational history here. So, so last year at the first SIPS, uh, there was, uh, I'm not sure if it was a hackathon or an unconference, but there was a something uh, where, where actually, and, and no one is sure. Probably, no one, no one knows. No one knows. Uh, no one except Brian knows. Yeah, I don't it's know probably not a knows. lightning talk. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was not a lightning talk. That is that is known. Uh, but so, and and again, we had a great turn. We had a great turnout this year, but we had a great turnout last year with folks who were interested in talking about teaching. Uh, and we we identified a lot of content, but I think we struggled for kind of an an, uh, an overall structure for how to organize it, how to distribute it, how to kind of uh, identify what were particularly good resources. Right. Uh, so I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think Dan was the one who kind of had the vision for, let's just make modules and, yeah. and keep it really short, sweet, and self-contained, and yeah. then folks can choose what they want. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, at least for me, I sort of um, looked at where uh, extra people were needed in terms of leading a hackathon and this this topic really spoke to me because I, I basically like my research focuses on a lot of different aspects of meta science and like all these these different types of of improving 
psychology and this syllabus seemed like a great way of touching up on all these different topics so i didn't have to choose between all the other amazing hackathons and conference sessions well and and your your module on on you know reporting practices i think is is a great example of of content that probably isn't taught in a traditional mm. old school research methods course that in this day and age now in the era of of stat check and reproducibility uh, is going to be a great one and an obvious one that i think a lot of folks are going to see and think oh yeah i should plug that into my research methods course yeah and it's i what i really like is these these modules are pretty simple like uh, some some of them only consist of suggested literature, but then basically you have uh, two overview articles and maybe some conflicting views. And I think that is already a great starting point if you want to say something about these kind of topics, but you're not super familiar on right. which which resources are the best to use. Yeah. And this was just some of these modules we could make them in like twenty minutes. Some of them took a little bit more time, but a lot of them. I mean, we as a group already know a lot of what is going on but if you're not so involved uh, then it's it's hard to sort of pick out what the what the key papers are in certain areas yeah and, and not just for classes like i'm just excited to share the list with my colleagues you know uh, a lot of my colleagues back at the university of victoria obviously steve lindsay is there um, editor of psych science editor of psych science and and doing great things for for open and reproducible science but a lot of our colleagues you know aren't aren't really kind of in the know about open science practices so never mind students it's just a great resource for colleagues who are you know what what's this pre-registration thing and why should i care or you know if i'm going to share a data set what do i what do i need to think about uh, it's going to be really helpful for for those folks too right so one thing that i think we might worry about at SIPS is that we're we live in a bubble, right? I mean, we make this great resource, we come to this meeting, we sort of pat each other on the back, but then how do we actually get these resources to people, right? How are we supposed to get these 30 modules that we've made out to other people that, you know, don't follow us on Twitter, for example, or... Are there? Or, yeah. Who doesn't follow yeah. us? I mean, really. What is what is this universe outside of Twitter that you see? <laughs> no, but I think, I think actually the first step is already this format of SIPs that makes a huge difference because, I mean, if this would have been a regular conference format on open science, then indeed it would be preaching to the choir. Everyone would mostly agree with each other on what should be done and we would all be so happy agreeing with each other and then we all go home happy and nothing happened and with these things at least we have something if like if we want to reach out to uh the the more broad scientific community at least we have something to show like this is concretely what you could do to help out instead of saying pre-registration is good present a very nice format of how you should do it and in different ways of 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 severity or something and I, th I think that's very useful to be sort of pragmatic about a lot of things. Totally. And and I think one of the features of the organization or one of the characteristics of the organization that really helps disseminating the kind of products that we create uh, at SIPS uh, is that I think unlike some, some other conferences, um, SIPS is, is pretty horizontal, by, by which I mean right from the get-go, there isn't this kind of stratification of here are the big name top tier researchers that we're all going to listen to. Right. And here's everyone, you know, here's here's the rubble at the bottom of the pile. There's no keynotes. No. And, and, and we... We value big name researchers, we value meta-scientists, we value methodologists, we value instructors. Uh, and, and you see that diversity of, of kind of professional affiliations and the kind of institutions folks folks run with um, so that we have folks who 
can reach out to the, we, we have editors that can reach out and, and shape journal policy. We have uh, big name researchers and department chairs who can shape kind of local institutional practices. We have instructors uh, who who can uh, take some of the stuff that we learn and begin importing it into how we train our young developing professionals. And we I have think graduate students and undergraduate undergraduate students. students. I was surprised that was how many amazing. undergraduates are here. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, these are the people who are going to sort of have to poke their advisors and say, "Hey, you know, I went to this conference and everyone's talking about pre-registration or." sample size planning or all these things and right i mean yep, it, part yep. of it comes from the top but a lot of it comes from the bottom i think and i think i think that well and i think what i'm what i'm trying to say is i'm not sure in sips there is much of a top or a bottom but just that there is a role for everyone mm. um, everyone feels like there's a way for them to contribute everyone feels like they're learning everyone feels like they're helping uh, and i think that's a fantastic feature and, and a distinguishing and defining feature of the organization it's extremely unique totally yeah, and I wonder, like, why wouldn't everybody come to this sort of conference? I mean, some of it is accessibility. It's in the U.S. or it's in the middle of the summer. It's sort of hard. But I wonder if there's any sort of, you know, people out there who feel like, yeah, maybe they're not welcome here. Or uh, I don't think anyone that's anyone's intention. But I think sometimes we can come off as very critical, very critical group. Uh, I wonder if how we can improve our PR essentially, right? Because we don't we don't want to exclude anybody, but some people definitely feel like you know, oh, this crowd is not my crowd. Yeah. Right. I mean, this was something that that is that has been an ongoing discussion since since the first meeting. So the first meeting, um, a number of folks, you know, kind of voiced opinions about uh, how do we grow the tent, and not just with people that we know. Um, but with and and people that are in our quote unquote bubble, but people beyond our bubble, um, and I think I think we've had some mixed success with that as an organization this year. I mean, uh, I think for example, um, uh, you know, uh, Uli Shimak was was someone that that wasn't at SIPS last year. Uh, who's at SIPS this year? That I think is is someone that that kind of pushes the uh, you know our our. Uh, zone of, of the kind of things that we're considering, the, the topics that we're discussing. Uh, and I know people are interested in, in bringing more kind of uh, competing ideas and perspectives uh, to our organization. So, you know, we want, you know, we want Eli Finkel here. We want Chris Crandall here. Uh, we want these folks here to to be able to share their perspectives with us because, you know, a lot happens in, in kind of small meetings and one-on-one or, or kind of small group conversations uh, that ends up kind of tumbling into group action right uh, yeah and it would be very interesting to hear from people because i think a lot of people that this is this is maybe also speaking for my own bubble but i think uh there are a lot of people who are sort of sympathetic towards this open science movement but are a bit hesitant about how to sort of uh, incorporate it in their own research and they're they're sort of maybe thinking like we yeah, have well, in my field this is really different or there are like massive obstacles here that clearly this group didn't think about and I think especially those people would be so useful to, to it would be so informative to have them here right. to tell them, to tell us like, yeah, this is a great idea, but this is very difficult for my kind of research because of this and this and this. And then we can collectively come up with a solution for that problem because I'm very positive that there's definitely uh, an open science way of approaching every subdiscipline in psychology or in general in, in science. And yeah, it would be nice to sort of have a more open atmosphere because, yeah. 
and, and I mean, and I think I think um, someone in particular that deserves a lot of credit for helping to build mechanisms that that promote openness uh, in the community and diversity uh, and inclusion is is Sanjay Srivastava, who who's been organizing uh, a hackathon and a rehack. Um, making sure that 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 trying his damnedest and, and getting folks in to to make sure that that SIPS is as much as we can make it uh, an organization that everyone can feel feel welcome in and and at every level of the organization and I think that's a that's a fantastic thing. Right. Uh, I'd like to ask you guys. So, um, Michelle, you are just now starting a new position as an assistant professor. Yeah, almost. Well, well, almost. almost. I sort of, very I have soon. to sort of end my dissertation still. Yeah. <laughs> but you yeah. will be. I shortly. will be. Yeah. Uh, and John, you just finished your first year as a professor. Yes. Um, so I wonder, what is your perspective as early career researchers who are very active in the sort of reproducibility movements, the open science movements? How are you personally going to be implementing these ideas in your labs? So, uh, and with your teaching, I don't know exactly which courses you're teaching, but can you just speak to this a little bit? Um, yeah, that's. A, I think I'm in a somewhat um, strange position in the sense that I uh, my, my PhD was about meta research already. Mm. Like I, I hear about a lot of people who sort of roll into this topic because of their frustrations within the field or they 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 start out as applied researchers and they become interested and my project was about improving science from the start which gives me maybe a, a different perspective mm. um so i'm i'm already like in my own work kind of used to uh, trying to put everything on Open Science Framework, trying to register whatever I can, uh, trying to put all my data online. Um, I'm I'm actually uh, supervising a group of students now who are trying to implement uh, StatCheck or use StatCheck to scan a large body of Chinese literature, oh, uh, which is really that nice. That is so rad. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And um, Can you say a quick word about what StatCheck is? Yeah, StatCheck is basically a spell checker for your statistics. So what uh -huh. it does is it checks whether the p-value you report is consistent with the test statistic and degrees of freedom. And it's a free tool and it's an R package, um, but also it's a web app at StatCheck.io. And it's, I think it's really helpful to, to use to, uh, to check your own articles before submitting it to make sure that you uh, don't slip up somewhere and then a stupid typo will cause maybe a correction because no one wants that. Right. Um, but the students I supervise, I, I, this is the first group of students I supervise in a project like this. And I'm, I'm trying to uh, uh, supervise them into to registering these ideas, which is it's pretty exciting, actually. I think, I think it's both useful from a scientific perspective in the sense that our research will be confirmatory, but it's also a very good didactical tool in making them think about what exactly they're going to do and how exactly right. they're going to do it before they run into obvious problems that you that are actually not as obvious if you just start doing it. So I think these open practices, maybe in 10 years from now, maybe that is extremely optimistic, but I think people who start research now and they get in touch with these kind of methods will think that they're completely logical and normal and just incorporate in, in their normal workflow. And that would be great if that is something I can teach my future students. Right. And and so uh, just as a side note, StatCheck, you, uh, someone talked about it at SIPS last year. And then 
Steve Lindsay, the editor of Psych Science, contacted you about implementing this, right? Yeah. For Psych Science, right? Yeah, the Psych Science is, is using this in, in their review process now. So every paper that is uh, up for review, so every paper that is not desk rejected, um, is scanned with StatCheck to, to also make sure that in the review process, potential um, reporting inconsistencies um, get solved before publication. So that is really exciting. Wow. Uh, and John, what what will you be? Uh, how will you be doing this in in your lab group? Yeah, well, uh, you know, someone asked me um, earlier in the conference, how did I get started in this whole kind of open science reproducibility movement? And I can't actually answer the question. I don't actually remember or know what was kind of the triggering moment. And and one of the complications that I experience is is um, when I was a grad student in the University of Kansas, when I became kind of interested in this stuff, no one there was was really deeply steeped in the open science movement. So a lot of the folks that are coming up and building open science labs, um, they they kind of got training from from some of the early pioneers in in those those technologies and methodologies, and. I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and so I, I've, uh, my kind of learning about open science methodology has been a lot of trial by fire. Oh. Um, and, uh, but, you know, through those mistakes, I feel like I'm, I'm learning good systems. Uh, and uh, I'm fortunate enough to have uh, uh, an amazing um, undergraduate uh, research assistant Robin Kilshaw, who's uh, y- you know talk about about you know wonderful wonderful students. Uh, Robin's one of those students that you introduced you introduced her to open science, and she just took like it to like a fish to water where it just made sense. Mm. Uh, and so Robin is arguably more passionate about helping me set up systems in the lab uh, that that promote open science and reproducibility. Um, so we're playing around with technologies like Slack so that we, we have kind of documented uh, searchable conversations for every project in the lab. Uh, we're ripping off uh, shamelessly uh, Lauren Campbell's uh, system of organizing uh, research pro- uh, projects in the lab in terms of what stage they are, where their registrations are, where their materials are, so that all that is very quickly you know findable and, and shareable. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's kind of exciting to to be and and simultaneously scary to be starting from the ground up, where where I, I just I kind of know what I'd like my research program to look and what how I want my my students to, to feel good about open science, but we're we're getting to create a lot on the fly, uh, mm. and I'm getting to teach a lot about you know one of the nice things about my position at the University of Victoria um, is I get to. Uh, look after the the capstone statistics course for honors undergraduates and the beginning uh, statistics course for uh, graduate students in our department. Uh, and uh, I'm you know I'm including open science and reproducibility stuff throughout all of that. So and and this year especially I'm I'm reflipping that course in a in a big way. You know we're going to have a whole section on on you know verifying accurate reporting. Mm. Uh, we're going to play with around with learning how to set up reproducible workflows. Uh, both in terms of our projects and linking that up with the OSF and uh, all that good stuff. So I'm I'm really excited uh, about it, and I'm I'm lucky enough to to work in a place where, you know, even if they don't, if a lot of my colleagues don't know what's going on with the open science movement, they're open to and interested in me, you know, sharing that stuff with our students. Right, because unlike Michelle, you didn't study meta science and 
methodology necessarily in your PhD. You were what was your main no? Field? I I I am uh, I am a a sexuality researcher who sometimes on rare occasions pretends to be a social psychologist. Okay. Um, <laughs> It, what times are those? What <laughs> 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 parties? <yeah. laughs> well, well, you know, I, I think, I think what I, what I, uh, I enjoy the, t- you know, I'm, I'm intrinsically interested in, in topics of sexuality, but I'm attracted to social psychology for uh, the theoretical perspectives and the methodology. Uh, I like the creative use of observational variable and behavioral variables. Uh, I like the use of experimental methods. Uh, but then, I, you know, there's this part of me that I'm a methods geek. I love the quant. I love, uh, and, and I think that's why I got hooked on, you know, if I had to, you know, imagine how I got roped into the whole open science thing. It's just uh, day in, day out, if I want to read anything, uh, it's it's stats and methods articles. And then eventually that that's all that popped up in my Twitter feed. So now here I am. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Um, so one question I have is, um, sort of for you guys are at the point in your careers now where you're acting maybe on editorial boards for journals or uh, doing a lot of reviewing uh, of your colleagues' papers. I wonder what, what specific things you think we can do, uh, how to sort of reach out to these journals or reach out to authors um, and really encourage them to also pick these things up. Uh, have you had much success with, well, we, we know, Michelle, you had success with psych science, uh, with stat check, but are there any other sort of tricks or tools or strategies that you're using for this? Well, as a as a reviewer, uh, I try to always sign my reviews, and uh, I thought that was really easy. But then it turned out that it was easy because I was usually pretty, well, relatively positive about a lot of articles. And then I had to review one that I thought was just really bad, and mm. then I did feel that it's actually not super easy to write your name <laughs> underneath everything you uh-huh. write. But I do I do do that as a standard practice right now, and I hope with that like very small thing to also encourage people to think about what they write in reviews because in the end I just want to help make people um, improve their research and I don't know everything and I just sort of try to point out what does or does not make sense to me and they can prove me wrong I am very open to that so yeah and I also try to when when people are working with with data sets or um uh, if they are running a lot of analyses to try to encourage them to post their data online mm. and to, to also post their analysis scripts online. That's big. Um, yeah. So you don't I'm, just need the data. You need to know how to get back to the results, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, data sharing is nice. It is better to also share your code. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, for anyone who, who wants to... Uh, kind of uh, shape policy at the journal level or the society level, I I think one of the the most important things you need is perseverance. I think you need to be persistent uh, in kind of lobbying for some of those uh, changes that you want to see. Currently, I I work on two editorial boards uh, for for, uh, a couple of sexuality research journals. Uh, And, you know, it's it's been a long road with both of them to try to get them to take uh, you know, incremental steps towards increasing the reproducibility of, of the research that they publish. Uh, I'm thrilled because both of them 
have taken some of those steps. So one of them uh, that Michelle and I have been in contact periodically about uh, a small Canadian journal, we've we've been piloting uh, a stat check uh, initiative where I run stat check on all the articles that uh, we uh, accept to make sure that everything that's that's reported them is is at least adding up in terms of test statistics and degrees of freedom and p values. Mm. Um, and then at the Journal of Sex Research, we're, we're working on uh, revising uh, some of the submission requirements regarding uh, disclosures of, of analytic flexibility, kind of building off of some of the changes that, that uh, we saw modeled in our field at, at a journal called Sexual Abuse, which adopt, encouraged researchers to uh, use the 21-word solution for kind of talking about uh, how they determine sample size and outliers and what measures were included and what conditions were included. Uh, so, so I, you got to stick with it. I mean, those are conversations that I've had with, with folks on those editorial boards for years. Um, and, uh, I think, I think part of that is recognizing where societies are and, and where groups of researchers are and trying to meet them there and push them a little bit, but, but, you know, you can risk coming over, over the top a bit too strong. Right. Yeah. So you sort of want to keep the end goal in mind, but don't just go straight there. Yeah. Right, because in I imagine in the sexuality research field, uh, open data is a sore subject, right? It's sort of like this is very sensitive material, sure. like some very intimate material. Absolutely. And so I, I imagine that it's do you, how exactly does data sharing go on in that field? Does it go on at all? It, or? it really it really doesn't for the most part. And I think I think you know one of the things that I've needed to think about in terms of importing open science practices. Uh, into sexuality researches, what are the good starting places? Where are the places that we can build consen consensus the quickest, the most? Uh, and open open data just isn't one of them. So you know, for example, when I was when I was a, a grad student, I ended up um, working with a colleague to help analyze some uh, a, a data set uh, of lesbians living in the South uh, hmm. in terms of their their mental health and well being. And you can imagine that that is not a data set that you want to be trigger happy to put out into the open public right. for very good reason. Right. Um, and so I think I think open data is going to be an area that, that even though a lot of us do research that probably could and should be shared uh, more easily than we do, I think that's going to be an area where it's slow. Um, but other areas, you know, I think I think we could be a lot more transparent. You know, I think I think we could do a lot uh, a, a lot better work in terms of sharing the materials that we're using, uh, sharing our our analytic code. Uh, in sexuality research, I think one of one of the big uh, areas that that could use improvement is it's an interdisciplinary field, which is great. It means that we we draw on this diversity of theories of methods, uh, which I think makes for a richer kind of interesting area of, of subject matter. Um, but it means that when you're talking to that group, you know, many of them might only have one or two statistics courses. Right. And so conversations that we've been having in psychology for years about you know, uh, analytic flexibility and how that undermines the credibility of our p-values, which undermines the replicability of our results. Um, that's something that I think sexuality research needs to start thinking about a lot more because people go into that research uh, oftentimes with a mindset of asking exploratory questions, which I think is fantastic, um, but then kind of confusing that with exploratory data analysis practices that aren't always replicable. Uh, so, I, you know, if there's one thing that I want to work on in, in that specific field, that's something that I'd love to see us get, get a little bit better about in the near future. Yeah. Uh, Michelle, do you think there's any sort of core education that's lacking as a, a broadly speaking in psychology? Do you think there are certain topics that uh, 
people, you know, the, the core topics people you think need to know that they aren't getting? Well, I, I, I teach a, a first year's uh, methodology class. And uh, I remember this one time my, my lecture was right after uh, a lecture on an introduction to social, social psych. Uh, that was taught by Mark Brandt, who is actually also pretty active in the replicability movement. Right. So I talked with him a little bit about, yeah, how how what is what is course look like now? A lot of uh, the the sort of the classic experiments in social psych didn't replicate because you, it's yeah. How do you teach about those type of experiments to your first years in a way that is both sort of comprehensible but also true? Right. Uh, <laughs> And and he said it that doesn't he, make them want to run away from the field. Yeah, that yeah. too. And he said that his his course changed completely uh, as compared to like five years ago. And I thought it was very interesting because he said like I'm I'm sort of presenting not like the end results of of these experiments, but um, sort of yeah the, the 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 state of the field right now. So what the original experiment looked like and whether it replicated or not. Mm. And he. F- he told me that he found that the students, and these are first-year students, these are 18-year-olds that have almost no experience with scientific methods or anything. They were very uh, sort of enthusiastic about the ideas that science isn't always right. It was a very interesting course because they got to uh, sort of discuss why things may not have replicated. Mm. Um and I, I try to also teach that in, in my class. Like I, I try to also give them a broad overview about the replicability crisis. But also, I think this this combination of being critical in an applied course like that and having the background of a methods course can really teach them that methods and statistics are not the worst <laughs> courses in your <laughs> education, which is usually sort of the the image that they have. Like they, yeah. they statistics and methods are something that you have to do, and they're not interesting. And I think. One of the nice, one of actually the good things of the reproducibility crisis is that it's a very good way to have students think critically about what is going on in science and make them critical researchers, even if they're not going to be scientists. I think that it's very valuable for them to learn about these things in such a way, and, and I'm very excited about that. Right, and I think the reproducibility, you know, kind of crisis has opened up a, a window to kind of put a more fun interesting spin on research methods and statistics Uh, like now for example we can spend our courses talking about things like how to create really interesting and cool visualizations of data whereas before we might have just relied on yield spss ugly plot right Um, so students who are interested in kind of visual design can start thinking about kind of interesting ways to visualize data or you know with things like uh, stat check or or uh, the p checker app you know students kind of come into to methods and and statistics with this kind of oh i get to be a data detective yeah. and isn't that cool that i can kind of look into research and see you know what's trustworthy and what's not and i can kind of find out for myself yeah it's a it's a, it's a much more active attitude towards research content and methods that is i think what is sort of expected and required and hoped that they will learn that if you give someone an academic education but i think it has fallen into this summary of well these are important <laughs> effects in this field right. it's, it's a bit more of an empowering approach i yeah. think like students are feeling like i i can take charge of figuring out what i think is real and what i think right. is just 
noise. And there's like now there's an entire field of exploratory work out there that's like waiting to be confirmed, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like almost all of the work that's out there wasn't pre-registered. We don't know if it's going to work out or not if we do it again, and that's kind of exciting. Everything's up for grabs again. Yeah, and, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that the work that was done in those areas um, is 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 bad, especially in in historical context. Uh, you know, I think, for example, social psychology gets a bad rap sometimes uh, for its contributions to the reproducibility crisis. But I think, I think, regardless of of the state of that empirical work, social psychology has still generated a lot of really interesting theories that that have have captivated you know a lot of people's interest in the field. But right. yeah, totally. Now, now, you know, if you're interested in some classic finding, do a pre-registered large large end study around it, and you can investigate all the cool stuff that you read about in textbooks and. It's all good. Right? Yeah, actually, uh, John Gray. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. It's, it's yeah, G R A A H E. Yeah, Gray. No. Well, anyway, he has like, this super cool project, uh, which is called the Crepe Project. It's, mm-hmm. it's spelled C R E P, but you can't say crap. <laughs> <laughs> actually, his logo is a bunch of grapes, so oh. that to prime you that it's <laughs> that it that rhymes with grape. <laughs> oh, good. But it's it's a it's a, a sort of a, uh, an undertaking to to promote undergraduate students to replicate findings in psychology so and the end goal is not necessarily to interpret the results of that replication because if you work with undergrads there i mean doing research is really difficult even if it's a replication maybe especially um but as a didactic tool it is extremely useful because you you first firstly you don't have to generate you don't have to let them generate research questions and i or think materials necessarily yes and the research questions are usually Pretty either cool. all the same or completely unmanageable <laughs> yeah. and i think if you just can sort of uh, follow the lines of a sort of a classic experiment and a lot of these are pretty straightforward then they still come across a lot of problems that could pop up and once they actually conducted the experiment and analyzed the results um, then either it replicated or it didn't um, if you want to think in like these dichotomous terms but then it's really interesting for them to think about like wait the original effect was significant ours is not why could that be and then it turns out that they're actually very critical and smart about it whereas if you would have asked in like some stats exam uh, how to interpret a p-value below 0.05, they would, I don't know, just immediately shut down. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, no, it, it sounded like a really cool thing, and students are very enthusiastic about it. And I think it provides a safer context to deploy some of these potentially riskier uh, kind of uh, method proposals that are on the table that people might be a little bit more averse to to applying in their own research. So, for example, if you're repli- trying to replicate some classic study, you have, as you said, you had the materials, uh, you kind of know what the researchers found. Well, now you can feel a lot more comfortable and confident. For example, pre-registering a directional hypothesis around that. So maybe this is a good opportunity for you to play around with pre-registering a one-tailed test. Mm-hmm. Whereas if that was your research program, you might have this kind of concern of Oh God! Will people take my my finding seriously if it's one tailed? Even those are controversial. But but if you know if it's like you know if someone were to replicate Milgram, 
you know, we it's know a pretty clear we, direction. We, yeah. exactly, exactly. We know we know what Milgram's find. You know, Milgram's study says about obedience to authority. So we can pre-register a directional hypothesis with confidence around that. Uh, or maybe, for example, you, you know, kind of getting at the, the, the stuff that you're encouraging folks in the in the field to do, Alex. You know, maybe that's a good time for folks to play around with uh, tiptoeing into Bayesian inference if they haven't done it before, and say, right. okay, here's here's my here's my replication. Uh, is this informative for the the alternative the null or neither right yeah i mean and it's a very natural place to incorporate this bayesian analysis because the original study sort of embodies this hypothesis right i mean you can take the result of it and specify your model using this result right you don't have this sort of weird feeling of like well what exactly is my prior representing how do i define it you just you look at the original study and you say, we're just going to sort of take that as that position. Sure. And then we'll compare it against, say, no effect or a small effect or something like this, right? Um, I want to ask you guys, what, is, what was your education like when you were taking methods classes? Because, I mean, it's completely different from what you're proposing to teach, right? I mean, or did you get this type of education? Were you replicating studies and pre-registering studies and... Uh, thinking all these issues through, or how did it go about for you? I think I was, um, I mean, uh, I think somewhat obviously in, in, you know, at the time that I started grad school, courses on open science weren't a thing yet. Yeah, right. You know, What I, year did you start? Oh, God. Uh, 2010. 2010. 2010. So, so I remember, like, I can remember sitting in, in my, my grad school office reading the false positive, you know, uh, Simmons and colleagues paper and thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> um, Where were you when? Yeah. Right? So, so, you know, there weren't classes that, that you know, would be teaching the sort of uh, methodological how-to content that I'm going to be teaching, for example, in some of my classes. But I will say that, that I was lucky enough, I think, to go through, through KU's program during the, uh, the twilight of the golden era of, of quantitative training at the University of Kansas before Chris Preacher left, before Todd Little left. Uh, mm. Before some of these really, really, uh, you know, super knowledgeable, fantastic instructors. Um, so some of the stuff in, in the reproducibility crisis, by the time it hit, I wasn't totally surprised by, you know, right. uh, even though, you know, the false positive paper hadn't been out. Uh, you know, folks in the KU program, uh, at least in the quantitative side of things, were talking about how all of these things undermine p-values. So that wasn't like a huge surprise conceptually. The extent to which it does, right. oh my God. Maybe one question to wrap us up um, is, if you had the ultimate power to change one thing in psychology, to try to mitigate this crisis or to change things for the better, uh, and you could just snap your fingers and it would happen, what would you do? have being open in your workflow as a standard and only treat like these exceptions that John mentioned, which are which are valid exceptions as exceptions instead right. of the norm. I think that would solve almost everything. Set the default and then have people be exceptions from it. Exactly. I see. Yeah, yeah I like I like the openness as as a default argument. Uh, I will also say, uh, you know, to to shamelessly boost Michelle's ego that that oftentimes when when I give talks in in communities that aren't exactly down with the replicability crisis topic about what can you do today to to improve your research, the the starting point that I think is the most successful is is 
correct reporting of test statistics because we can agree or disagree on the extent of the problem and and the extent of the impact of the problem but there's no one that's out there that's going ah yes that i misreported that that test statistic that's a good thing right and and (laughs) that that can't can't be said for for many other methodological features of the of the reproducibility crisis most things are up for debate right and and there's always exceptions and and i think that becomes an important some you know for better or for worse an important barrier for building consensus is that someone can always say ah but what about this or what about that right whereas no one's sitting there saying you know you might say that oh incorrectly reported test statistics aren't a huge problem but that's very different than saying that's a good thing and yeah. so i think you know i think i think michelle michelle has the right of it that i think if we eventually get to a place where folks who can be open with their data and and everyone can be open with their materials and their their code that should just be happening but if you can't be open with your data that's fine but if you can you should be but for folks who are just you know if we want to build consensus around low-hanging fruit i i think you know reproducibility of test statistics is just an obvious place to start right i mean nobody thinks that you should report a t value of four when the correct value is two and a half unless it's my paper <laughs> unless, <laughs> unless it's my paper. then it's cool that's right <laughs> <laughs> well awesome well thanks guys for joining us on this podcast um i want to thank john and michelle and we will see you next time thank you alex. thanks alex you can find this podcast and all the background information mentioned in it on the Tufts HiLab website at sites.tufts.edu slash hilab slash podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the base factor. We want to thank Sol Albert and Laura de Ruiter for their technical support, Sotaro Kita from Warwick University for generously letting us use his lab for several interviews, the Cognition and Individual Differences Lab at UC Irvine for their financial support, and Theo Fosse for creating the music for this podcast.